0: Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chitam and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is, as always, presented by Mercury Mile. Mercury Mile is fusing fashion and function for runners of all abilities, and the fact of the matter is that they have the best stuff around. They send it right to your home so you don't have to worry about heading out going to any of the sporting goods stores and figuring out what looks good and what feels good for you. You can just do it on your phone or on your computer, have it get sent right to you. Just go to mercurymile.com, enter your sizes and preferences and you'll get a box of four to six running goodies set to you, curated for you. And I know you're going to like it. And that's the best part. You keep what you love and you just send back what you don't. And if you use code rambling runner 10 at checkout, you save 10 bucks. So This episode is kind of part two of our Boston Marathon discussion. I have someone who I've looked up to for so long, and that is Mario Fraioli. He has just been a mainstay of the running media community for such a long time. He's also a high-level coach and a high-level runner. And we touch on all of those things in this episode. Not so much the coaching aspect, but definitely the running and the media. And at the end, we do a Boston Marathon breakdown. Last week, we did it more for the everyday runner, so to speak. This one's more at the elite level. We talk about what the marathon was like for the elites of the race. Also, how it plays into the basically the, the upcoming 9 to 10 months. So, leading into... The Olympic trials in 2020 and the decisions that a lot of the elites are going to have to make in terms of how they're going to prepare for the trials, as well as making sure that they get a good, a good look at the qualifying. Standard. So we touched on a lot of things. Mario is just a wealth of information and I was so excited to have him on the show. So I hope you like this episode with Mario Frioli. Hello, Mario, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to have I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. And little did I know, we were actually in the same race going back like twenty years. I sent you No way. I sent you a, a picture a little while ago, a couple months ago, of a race that you you came in second or third in my hometown in the scorching fast time. I was I was quite a bit back, but it was interesting to see your name right at the top. I, you know, I remember that I
1: think, and I think that's actually still my 5k road PR if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, that was a long time ago. Holy. Wow.
0: Yeah. I remember looking at it and being like, all right, there's not many Mario Fraiolis. I think you had, the, <laughs> I think you had the town of Ashburnham was like, where you? were we were from at the time? Uh, Auburn, Massachusetts. Auburn. Yes, that's okay. where I grew up. All right. Got it. Yeah. Cause this was in Barrington, Rhode Island at the time, yep. which was like, The start line was like a mile from my house. It was one of those – for me, it was one of those warm-ups. It was run to the start line, and the cool down was run home.
1: That's hilarious. Uh, It's one of the awesome things about this sport, too. I can't tell you how many people I've met recently who – have told me the same thing or I've told the same thing. It's like, Hey, we just met each other and we seem to know each other now. And we were in the same race like 15 years ago or 20 years ago without even knowing it, especially when I go back to college and and those days. And I just, I just love those stories. I think it's one of the great things about our, our sport.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because it's not even, you know, something that maybe you and I can talk about, but you know, you look at say the Boston marathon, which was this week, that you can have the elites of the world can actually have a conversation with, someone at the other end of the spectrum, and they can kind of compare notes on how their day was affected by certain factors and things like that. Like you don't play pickup game with LeBron James, but you can go run a marathon with Jordan Hesse.
1: Exactly. And you're running in the, on the same course at more or less the same time in the same conditions. And a lot of the things that someone like Jordan Hesse or Des Linden struggled with during the race might be some of the same things that you struggle with. And obviously their objectives are different. They're trying to win and place as high as possible, but that's a great thing about the marathon is everyone is up against the same obstacles and has to solve a lot of the same problems.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. It's such a unique situation, especially when you have the, you know, when you see someone I was talking to, I forget who it was, but he was talking about how, I think it was at CIM. Oh, it was Nicholas I was at CIM. He was running a PR in the marathon at the time. And all of a sudden he finds himself next to Stephanie Bruce, who, you know, is, is kicking butt coming off of New York and having this, you know, this wonderful experience at CIM. And he's looking at her like, you're my hero. And this is like mile 22 of a marathon. We're both doing our thing. It was, he was talking about how it was just like, he was in awe at the moment of like, what in the world is going on right now?
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I had a similar experience at CIM, but much earlier in the race. And in order to not s- sabotage myself, I latched onto to the Stephanie Bruce, Emma Bates, and I can't remember who else was in that pack, train early on just because I knew they would race smart and set a, a very steady tempo early on, which would prevent me from doing something stupid. So that's funny. <laughs>
0: There you go. Yeah. And I, that's a great man. You must have a podcast of your own. Cause that was a great segue, <laughs> Mario. I gotta be honest. Cause I want to talk to you about your running because you're somebody who has been ingrained in the running community for a very long time with your work at very at different publications and as a coach as well. And then just from a running perspective, you were you know a really good runner early on in your career. And then you took this hiatus. Um, so just talk a little bit about, the hiatus you took from competition, and then kind of what got you back, and you kind of feeling that itch to 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 really kind of reach your your potential, so to speak. Well, it wasn't so much a
1: hiatus. I've been training and racing all along. I've never really stopped, except for some planned breaks and a few periods where I've been injured and just not able to to train and race. But I haven't always had that laser focus on my own running. There was a period of time, I'd say probably from 2000. God, like maybe 2012 or so to maybe two years ago where I had some decent races and they were fine, but it wasn't a priority for me. I was putting most of my energy into other things, my coaching, uh, my work, um, various other projects that, that I was involved with. And I was still running a fair amount and doing workouts, but there was no real structure to it. I was just sort of flying by the seat of my pants and, uh, had some, had some decent results. I, I've been at this for a long time and I have a lot of racing experience. And when I get out there, I know, I know what to do, but I wasn't doing all the things that I needed to do to really be at my best. Um, and that really flipped for me a little over a year ago, uh, at the, well, the end of, end of 2017, heading into 2018. And I had put the Boston marathon and CIM on my schedule set in April and December marathon. And I really just wanted to nail them, um, and just have really solid buildups going in, make that a priority, make myself a priority for the first time in a while while not, Neglecting all the other things that I was working on, so i've got a lot going on, but I just really I just really turned the dial and really was practicing what I preached to my own athletes and just making sure I was taking care of myself, like say putting the oxygen mask on first uh, and taking care of what I needed to do, and then getting on with with the rest of my life, where in the past, I would make sure everyone else was taken care of do what I needed to do to get, you know, my work done and then squeeze in a run when I could and race with whatever I I had. So it was really just sort of flipping all of that last year and it worked out
0: really well. So what precipitated this change in mindset? Not getting any younger, man. Uh, I, (laughs) I knew, um, I knew
1: that I had a marathon PR in me. That was, it's the one, one PR that I have, And it was 11 years old last year, but it was the one PR that I had that I knew I could take a chunk of time off. Uh, Even if it was only a small chunk of time, I just knew I had a faster marathon in me. Whereas with the shorter distances, the more traditional distances that I've raced a lot throughout my life, since I got into the sport in high school, 5k, 10k, and then, you know, more recent years, half marathon. um, I knew those would be hard to challenge and they really didn't interest me as much, but I really wanted to nail the marathon. I'd had some decent ones, but I'd never really put in, uh, since my, my first or second marathon, I'd never really put in a proper training block and did all the things that I needed to do to set myself up for success, and 36 years old last year, and there are plenty of people running faster as you get older. And if I'm being honest, I just don't know how much longer I'll want to train and race at a high level because it is such a physical and emotional and mental and psychological toll. So I I wanted to strike while the iron's hot. I was, I was really motivated to see what I can do and just committed to prioritizing myself uh, for last year and it paid off.
0: So we're the same age, Mario. So I know exactly what you mean. I turned 37 in January of 2019. So with that being said, you know what to do, right? I mean, you are a coach mm-hmm. and human and in, very ingrained in this sport for a long time, like I said earlier. But putting those things into practice, especially in the way that you wanted to to achieve these goals can be a wholly different endeavor. So what about your training and your workouts changed this year, not only in terms of execution, but your mindset and your recovery and just kind of taking the whole scope, looking at how you're able to produce and execute these things that you know you know how to do them. But kind of, as, as I just said, putting them into practice can be different sometimes.
1: Yeah, and
0: I'll start just by taking a step
1: back and reiterating that in past years, I would make sure everyone else was, was taken care of first. Uh, so last year what I decided to do was look at, I knew what I needed to do from a training standpoint, but look at all the things that I wasn't doing well. And it was sleep. Uh, it was, you know, putting my, my own workout first for the day, getting it kind of off of my plate so that at the end of the day, I was like, Oh man, I should really get out and try to squeeze in like three or four miles or whatever I can get in. Um, Making sure my nutrition was dialed, uh, and just—I mean, just committing to it. Just, just committing to—you know—I've always, I guess, I've always been an athlete. I've never been inactive because I like to get out and, and move, and it's a very social thing for me. But I really had to readopt that athlete mindset last year um, because I was always in the the coach mindset or the—you know—what can I do to help others mindset. And I and I didn't allow myself to get out of that. But I also had I had to start just by. Readopting the, the athlete mindset. And it was like doing the things I needed to do so that when I got on the starting line, I could look back and say, I've got no excuses. I've, I've trained hard. I've put in the work. I've prioritized this. I've made sure that I'm doing all the things outside of the workouts that I need to do to, you know, make sure I'm getting the most out of them and that I'm recovering." And that was different from, from what I've done in, in years past. So a lot of it was actually writing myself out a a framework or a schedule rather than flying by the seat of my pants and just kind of jumping in workouts with my athletes and sort of doing whatever I could. Um, I travel a lot for work and oftentimes when I travel for work, I have long days and there are a lot of social obligations at the end of it. And for my own running, there are a lot of times when I would take a day off or, I would be out late the night before and the next morning I'd be like, okay, let me see if I can squeeze four miles in here um before I get on with my day. Whereas last year, you know, for example, I was in New York last fall from the New York City Marathon. I had athletes racing, I had a couple other events that I was um involved with and this was a month out from CIM and I still had to get, you know, I had to get a big long run in and all of that. And it was just shutting myself off at night so that I could get a good night of sleep getting up at five the next morning so I could knock out my 23 miler and then getting on with my day whereas in years past I would have stayed up way too late uh, I would have slept in a little bit later I would have panicked as I got as I'd gotten out of bed and being like oh man I got to be at this place at nine o'clock and here it is eight o'clock I'll, I'll run out for like 20 minutes and do what I can um, so it was just a you know it was just a lot of that it was just making
0: myself a priority again in which part of making yourself a priority was the hardest to follow through on over the long term? Sleep.
1: It's always sleep. Um, I have a hard time shutting off. I just love everything that I am involved in. And that's great. Uh, And hopefully will continue to fuel and sustain me for a while. But at the same time, it's important that that you shut off. It's just like training, right? You need to take breaks from training. You need to have easier days. And oftentimes I'll just, I could be so absorbed at something like late at night, whether it's like reading an article or listening to a podcast and I want to see it all the way through. And and I just need to give myself like a hard shut off so that I can get a good night of sleep. And that's something that I've struggled with in, in recent years, but did a much better job with last year. And, and have continued that into, into 2019, uh, even though I still have moments when, when it is a struggle to shut off.
0: And you've made a career of telling other people's stories in the running community. <laughs> yes. And did you, what was your thought process on telling your own story during 2018?
1: I mean, storytelling's
0: powerful. Um, I think we see
1: a lot of ourselves in other people's stories and I've seen that through, my work, sharing stories with sharing other people's stories and, and seeing my own story in, in theirs. And a lot of that is, has motivated me and with some of the inspiration that I needed last year to, to do what I wanted to do in the marathon. And I had never previously shared too, too much um, of my own story or or what I was doing, but realizing how powerful of a vehicle that could be for other people. Uh, and, you know other people who are in in similar boats who, um, you know, are, are coaches but can't make time for their own running or just have busy jobs and have a hard time prioritizing their own training. Um, you know, getting older and wondering if they have another personal best in them. Um, you know, by me sharing my experiences with all of that stuff, it's I've seen just through the feedback that that it's, it's resonated, and I knew that it that it would because you know my my doing that you know, through my work and sharing other people's stories did that for me. So it was just sort of
0: paying it forward in a way.
1: Were you surprised
0: by how many people were interested in what you were doing?
1: Yeah, I still am. I don't know why people care, honestly. <laughs> um, I just, I mean, I'm just a guy, uh, you know, and I think, but I think that's just a good reminder for all of us that we're all, we're all just people, you know, we all have lives and we all have things outside of running. We have families, we have jobs, uh, even professionals, like, they have things aside, aside from running that, that they're struggling with as well, or, or they're struggling to balance, I I should say. Um, But, but it's interesting. And it's just like, for me, I, I think I live a pretty, pretty boring life, honestly. Um, But other, other people find, you know, find it interesting or find parts of it insightful or inspiring. And, and that always, you know, I don't think that'll ever not surprise me.
0: And what was the process like for you in terms of deciding whether to self-coach during 2018 with these big goals versus leaning on other people to set the agenda for you? Um, it wasn't really a decision.
1: I, I've been self-coached for a, for most of my, my post-collegiate career. I I've, I've have a number of mentors and advisors that I'll, I'll lean on for advice and ask questions to, but... Honestly, Matt, I'm a control freak. Uh, I just am. I, I am in a lot of aspects of, of my life and I I like being you know, I like being in, in control of things and calling the shots and not that I don't take instruction well, um, but especially given how you know, just how how busy my days can be and how inconsistent they can be from a, a scheduling standpoint, um, and knowing how frustrating it can get when you have a schedule and you're trying to follow it and you just can't. Um, I just need to be, I need to be adaptable and I need to be in control so that I can kind of move the pieces of my day around um, as, you know, as necessary. And a lot of it at this point of my running career in terms of of the training itself, is like I'll write myself out a schedule or a framework, but I need to have the flexibility to be able to you know, move a workout up a day or push it back a day or two, depending on how I'm feeling or what's going on with travel or scrap something altogether. Um, and I just, you know, and I think this is part of me, like why I'm being, or, or why I've been self-employed for the last several years. I I just don't, I don't like asking for permission. A lot of times I just like to go do things. Um, and so with my own, you know, with my own coaching, um, you know, I, I know what I need to do at this point. I know what type of training I thrive off of, um, I just know myself well enough and trust myself enough to, you know, and, and, and honestly to be accountable enough to myself at this point, when I do commit to something like that, I, I know that I, I will be. Um, so I didn't need someone else giving me things on a day-to-day basis, but I have a lot of people in my life that, you know, that I do rely on for, for feedback and to bounce ideas off of. And I'm very grateful for that.
0: And being a control freak can really help when you're focusing on the process. However, mm-hmm it can be not as advantageous on race day, especially if that race is a marathon where there's so many factors that can play a part in someone's, in someone's final result besides just their overall fitness. So as you were preparing for different, you know, CIM or Boston, how do you weigh that, you know, I guess your, your proclivity for being a control yeah. freak with the idea of there are so many things here that you cannot control.
1: Well, I, I actually look at it as an advantage. I fully recognize heading into, he- heading into a race or just heading into every day of my life that there are a lot of things that I have no control over. Um, and I'm well aware of that. I think having that awareness is, is important and it's key. Um, but there are a lot of things that you are controlling and I feel, that you are in control of, I should say. And when I'm in a, in a race situation, like I feel very confident about the decisions that, that I make, the things that I, the things that I can control. Um, and I have a very, I was a philosophy major in college. I have a very like stoic outlook when I'm, when I'm in a race, uh, I just, you know, I can accept, um, the situation that I'm in no matter no matter what it is if it's a really cold day if it's a really hot day if it's really windy, if people are moving like you know I can be aware of that and, and accept it and accept that the decisions that I make in those situations are all on you know are all on me um, and I think I have enough experience at this point to most of the time make you know make good decisions for you know for myself so i I think you know having that that proclivity to being in control of the situation is, you know, is to my advantage. But at the same time, just just respecting and understanding the things that I, you know, that I can't control and I may have to deal with uh, and, and realizing that, you know, that's just part of that's just part of a race. That's just part
0: of life. Yeah. And another area of your life where this can be, you know, an area where you can control only can control so much. Uh, especially when it comes to the outcome, is the work that you do as a media member, because obviously Mm -hmm. you want to put together the best stories, the most engaging stories, entertaining, but insightful and, and all of the adjectives that can pertain to this. But at the same time, you never know how it's going to be received and you never know exactly how it's going to be consumed. So as the media landscape, not just in the running community, but overall has shifted, how have you embraced some of those changes And kind of, as you mentioned, kind of gone off on your own uh, to be more in the the self-employed model.
1: Yeah, well, so my my media outlet, for those listening who are unfamiliar, is called The Morning Shakeout. And it's an email newsletter that comes out every Tuesday, and it has every week since late 2015. And the other side of that is The Morning Shakeout podcast, which comes out every week uh, where I interview athletes, coaches, and personalities in running and I started the newsletter because I wanted my own outlet where I could get opinionated about things that are happening in the sport. I could share things that interested me. I could interview people who I thought were compelling that I couldn't do at my day job at the time at competitor magazine dot Um, and it was just a, I mean, I don't. Even, it wasn't even. A, it wasn't a side hustle. I, I had no business ambitions behind it. It was just a creative itch that I I needed to scratch and wanted to have out there. And, and a lot of it, again, comes to control. I had control over the whole thing. I do whatever I wanted with it. Um, and it was really, you know, it's the same thing with the podcast too. It's like I, you know, I'm creating stuff that I myself, as a consumer of this content, would want to read or listen to. So at the end of the day it's what I'm doing is is for me. I'm, I'm putting out stuff that I would want to read that I'm interested in. Um, And on some level, I don't really care what other people think. Um, And, and I don't mean that in a, you know, in a bad way, I have great relationships with many of my readers and my listeners and we interact and I, I love all of that. And that's because they're interested in a lot of the same things that I, that I am. And, and that's, you know that's my audience. And and I don't try to be everything to everyone, um, nor am I interested in that. I, I get, you know, as maybe you do as well, like I get a lot of feedback from people who are like, hey, you should have you should have this person on or I can't believe you didn't write about this or whatever it may be. And it's like I, you know, I do what I can. But I at the end of the day, I, I kind of write about um, and talk to people that that interest me. Uh, and I know that there is a small subset of this greater running population that is interested in at least, you know, some of those things. And those are the people who are going to you know pay attention to it and, you know, sort of be fans of it. And I think, um, you know, to get back to your question on, on a greater level, uh, if we look at the media landscape, we're seeing more and more of that. People are, are gravitating toward following the people in the outlets that speak to them, that are producing content, that they are interested in, um, because it is, you know, it is very, you know, it is very niche, uh, in a way, rather than, you know, the old model of let's try to be everything to to everyone.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, the whole uh, a mile wide inch deep philosophy. Mm -hmm. I feel like that that mechanism, which served, which was so useful in the past has now been commoditized in so many ways. So that you really have to kind of not silo yourself, but really just kind of drill down into a certain area and then maybe do like a little bit of reaches every once in a while, yeah. kind of testing the water. I'm mixing so many metaphors. It's great. Just testing the <laughs> waters in certain ways. And see, all right, Is my audience kind of like this or is this a way to potentially expand the audience? All right. Not sure. And then, you know, you, you kind of can strike that balance a little bit. And it's interesting, too, especially from a running perspective, because it's a sport. That is inherently universal, but then from Mm -hmm. a media perspective is not consumed in the same way that it is uh, participated in.
1: Right, exactly. And and you have the sport of running and even within the sport of running, you've got you've got track and field, you've got uh, cross country, you've got road racing, you've got marathons, um, you've got ultra running, you've got trail racing. Um, And a lot of people who are into one of those verticals might not necessarily be interested in the other stuff and they just don't, you know, they don't pay attention to it. Um, And then you've got the we'll call it the participatory side of, of running people who look at it as as an activity and maybe they're looking for information on. You know, how they can get faster, how they can run a little bit longer, how they can lose weight, or whatever it is, and they have zero interest in the sport. And there's, you know, and then there's some overlap between like all of that stuff. Uh, and, you know, in the past, as you said, like a, a mile wide and an inch deep, like a lot of outlets would try to kind of cover as much of that ground as possible. And there are some that are focused on all those different verticals. Um, and I think what we're seeing more and more now is, you know, is just people kind of gravitating more toward individuals or you know smaller outlets that really you know that really speak to you know their interests and maybe it's primarily focused on one thing and there's a little bit of overlap or maybe they have a couple different places that they're going for information and stories on you know on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, and as a participation sport it's so unique because you know, say it, take take basketball for instance. You're not going to find a 40 year old man or woman who's like, "I don't want to know about LeBron James or Marsh Madness. Tell me how to shoot my jumper better." Right, exactly. <laughs> right? But running that could, that's a, a large cohort of the running audience is that that exact scenario. And from basically, there are there are so few, if any, other sports that you could put in that same category.
1: Yeah, and we could <laughs>
0: we could go off on a
1: whole tangent about this but i think it's i mean people look at lebron james and the nba and basketball just to use that example and there's no doubt that it's a professional sport these people are making a living doing it it's on tv people go to the games there's a lot of excitement um running struggles with that um there are a lot of people who who don't know that professional running is a sport, ask a lot of the pro athletes out there when they're in an airport and someone asks them, Hey, what do you do? And um, some of them will say, Oh, well I'm a pro athlete, but I've read many accounts and had have many athletes tell me where they just uh, they tell people, Oh, I'm, I'm an a uh, am an Olympic athlete. Uh, because if they say I'm a professional runner, oftentimes, you know, someone who doesn't follow the sport or isn't involved in that is like, you can, you could do that. Like people pay you to run. Like it's, it's an actual sport. They, only time they ever see it is is on the Olympics every four years. Um, Mario, this happened
0: to me on Monday. I mean, on Tuesday, yeah. I was up yeah. in Boston for work and I went to go get a coffee. I walked through the Fairmont Hotel Plaza, I mean, um, lounge area and standing there by himself. And there's people walking around, but he's just standing there in the middle of the lobby was Elisa DeCisa. Yeah. <laughs> and just and won no one the was... Boston Marathon the day before. So I go up to him, like, I just had a conversation with him, and everyone was just walking past and paying him no mind. Yeah, And I was I was gobsmacked. Yeah. He was second at the Boston Marathon. Oh, my goodness. He I, lost, can, I can't believe I he, just said that. He, I know, he Toronto lost, won. I, he lost I an incredible am. sprint. But, um, yeah, I can't yeah, believe exactly. I said that. I was so excited to tell the story. I mixed up the details. <laughs> it's,
1: a, it's a great story, but exactly. I mean, um, to to my point, that's exactly it. Is like if LeBron James was in that lobby, I mean, he'd have security guards around him and people like shielding him from the attention that he's getting. And here you've got a guy who's one of the greatest uh, marathon runners in history, and no one has any idea. Uh, so I think there is that you know there is that that disparity that exists that that isn't in you know isn't in other sports.
0: Right, right, all right. So let's just, let's dive into Boston because this was this really was an incredible. Race both for the men and the women. Uh, we'll just start off with the women, um, just because, shoot, that's how the broadcast goes. And we really focus on the women first. When you, when Dagifa, I- I'm pronouncing her name wrong, I, I, I um, Dagifa went out early on and broke away. What was your initial thought in terms of, you know, her execution and race strategy? Oh, I
1: thought for sure she was going to get caught in the hills. I even tweeted that at the time I was in Framingham at 10 K and she had a 14 second lead at that point on the, on the pack. And she had just started pulling away over the the previous five K and she wasn't running crazy splits at the time, but she had clearly made her move and separated herself. And I just thought it was way too early, uh, especially on a day like that where the weather was seemingly shifting every 20 or 30 minutes and uh, it's a long way to to run solo and I thought for sure with the power that was in the pack behind her, Edna Kiplagat, Des Linden, Jordan Hasse and others that they were going to catch her, no doubt in the hills uh, and the fact that she held on uh, the entire way, even though Kiplagat was closing down on her Um, that was a really impressive, I mean, that's an impressive effort. I think that's, I think that's one of the more impressive marathon efforts for women in the last several years.
0: It really was incredible. And I know the, you were there, so you might not have heard the announcers. I don't know if you had, uh, earphones in or whatever, but they were making hay over the fact that she had never been on the course before Mm -hmm. and didn't even reconnoiter like the Hills or any part of it. And they were basically alluding to the fact like, this isn't going to last too long. (laughs) <laughs> right, It was almost like the previous year when Yuki took off and they're like, all right, this isn't going to last. And like two years in a row, like wouldn't you know it, 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 it did, it did uh, come to fruition.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, and it just shows like, you have to take what any commentator like myself included,
0: uh, whatever they say with a,
1: with a grain of salt. Cause you just don't, you just don't know. Um, you know, unless, you know, unless you like intimately know that person and what they've been doing in training, uh, You know, so maybe with the exception of that person's coach, like whatever, whatever you say can and will be held against you after the race, because, um, you know, she she clearly was able to, you know, clearly was able to hold it. But it wasn't like she was a nobody. I mean, she's wearing bib number two. She's run 217. Um, She has she has the credentials to certainly run a 223 on a course like Boston. And, you know, no one went with her. She did it herself Uh, and hats off to her for having the confidence to go when she did and hold on all the way to Boylson street.
0: Yeah. And, and it was such an interesting um, women's group, you know, that, that, that main pack, because you had these stories where you had people like her and, um, you know, and the who are, you know, well-established and and ran very, very well, but you had with Des and Jordan, again, two people who are well-established, But at the same time, I feel like, again, maybe this is just me. I didn't know what to expect from either of them, but for very different reasons going into this race. What were your expectations for either of them?
1: Pretty similar to what you just said. I I wasn't sure what to expect. Um, What I did know and and what ended up happening is they both finished in the top five and I had a strong feeling that that was likely. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't think that it was likely for Dez to repeat. And that's not a, that's not a knock on Dez, but last year the conditions lined up in in her favor and she was able to get it done. Um, This year, you know, it was, uh, I mean, she, she was the hunted, not the, not the hunter. So I think if she were to, if she were to go early, that move probably would have been matched um, early on. And, and, you know, she may still have finished in the top five. And with Jordan, um i mean she's finished on the podium in every major marathon that she's you know that she's run so far and she certainly has the tools to win a race like that um but i wasn't sure if it was if it was her year but she put herself back on the podium again uh, ran a very um you know been a, ran a very patient and intelligent race and i mean i think it's only a matter of time before she wins a major um i mean just the consistency that she that she has shown uh this early in her marathon career is pretty, you know, is, is pretty remarkable. Um, But, you know, I always hate predicting who's going to, you know, who's going to win a race. I mean, there's just so many people who it's like they could possibly win depending on how it goes. Um, And I think it just, you know, it went in a way that wasn't uh, I don't think it was, it was conducive for, you know, for either Des or Jordan just on that
0: day. Yeah. And it was very interesting to see, Right after the race, yeah, it felt like the race had you know that people were still on the course when it came out that she's going to be running Chicago and it's going to be going for the American record there. Mm They were very explicit about that. Yeah, Uh, obviously part of the plan. And it was it was just an interesting way of going about, especially for somebody who, again, no fault of her own. You know, like last year this time she was hurt, and it's it's hard to predict how how your training is going to go this far out what were your, what was your original take on this just in terms of like the, the PR and media relations aspect of just of coming out so far in advance and making such a bold statement or proclamation.
1: I think there are a couple of reasons behind it. I think one of the primary ones is to just uh, piggyback off the momentum of, of this event and keep people, give people something to be interested and exciting, excited about through October. I mean, Typically, how these major marathon announcements go, um, they're not going to announce the commitments until you know maybe a couple months out. So, what does that mean? That means you know people forget about Jordan between now and say maybe July, August um, when they make her Chicago announcement. So, I think it was strategic on their part to get that announcement out of the way early because people are going to be paying attention to what she's doing between now and October. Um, I think the other part of that. Not necessarily like a PR thing, um, but from her camp is like if she's going to go after the American record and she runs, you know, say 218 something or 219 flat or whatever she does, you know, in Chicago. I mean, that sends a message to the rest of the women's field that like, hey, I'm on a level that most of you probably aren't right now. And you know I'm a I'm a favorite to make this team, so I think it's a power move in in a lot of ways. Um, and she's shown she's capable of doing that. I mean, she's run 2:21. Um, she's knocking on the door of that. She's not super experienced as a marathoner. I think this was her what fourth fourth marathon? Um, third third marathon? Third or fourth? yeah. Right? That, yeah. Um, yeah so I mean, it, she doesn't have a ton of marathon experience. So I think that's a third part of it too. Is like, all right, she's definitely going to run the trials in February 2020. And I think part of the strategy for for going to Chicago and announcing that is is just to get her a little bit more marathon experience heading into the trial so that she can be prepared to run whatever type of race she needs to run to to make the team.
0: And this is part of the calculus that all of these runners, both men and women, are having to uh, go through is deciding what they're going to do in the fall to be at their best in February 2020, where again, for some people, running a fall marathon will not be conducive to running well. And I think, you know, I'm just interested to see how this is going to play out for a lot of people because you have some high-profile marathons that might have winners that might be a little bit off the beaten path than what we're used to. I agree. Fall is
1: going to be really interesting. It wasn't that long ago that the new Olympic qualifying standards were released, um, which meant that no one had at the time they were announced, no one had the standard, uh, here in the U S and now quite a few people do have the standard. Um, you know, on the women's side, you've got Alaphine, Tulia Mook, who ran 226, Roberta Groner in 229. Um, they're under the new standard on the men's side, you get Scott Fowell and Jared Ward, who just got it at, at Boston. Um, you know, you have Jordan, you have Des on the women's side from Boston, but you have a number of, um, you know, you have a number of people. Actually, I wonder if Boston counts uh, now that I think about it uh, for the IAAF, because they, you know, they typically, um, you know, they regulate the type of courses in Boston because it's point to point usually doesn't count from a time perspective. So I'll have to ask some people on that. But anyway, point being, um, I think I think the yeah. top
0: 10 classification helps, but I don't know. If you're I, right. The, the time may not.
1: Yeah, I think it is. I think, yeah, that's the other part of it is like the top 10 at a marathon major um, may you know, may cancel out any sort of time. But, you know, regardless, there aren't a number of people, uh, as far as the marathon goes that have the standard here in the US yet. Um, And this announcement just came not that long ago. And it's going to force a lot of people to change their fall plans. Uh, I would say, you know, had this not been announced, most of the you know, and the standards hadn't changed, most of the contenders would not race a fall marathon. Um, And if they did, they'd, you know, maybe they'd race an early one. Um, But a lot of them were just, you know, would just train through the fall um, and have themselves as ready as possible for the trials in early 2020. Um, And now it's going to change. I think we're going to see, you know, I I think we're going to see a lot of Americans running marathons in September and October, trying to either nail down the time or, you know, give themselves one of the two other standards, whether it's top 10 at a marathon major, top five at a gold label race, um, you know, so that they have the standard out of the way when they get to Atlanta next year, because, you know, that race, you've got a race for the top three spots and the course is, probably not going to be fast um based on everyone's feedback so far and the chances of people getting the standard in that race are you know are pretty low so it's going to be an interesting fall for for american marathoners uh because a lot of them are going to be forced to chase this qualification standard so that they have it before the trials in atlanta
0: yeah and as you mentioned uh jared ward and scott Fauble, they you know they've ran sub 210 which is a huge number for the male runners um you know it's and rightfully so. There's a lot, a lot of talk and a lot has been written about how American women marathoners are doing just doing wonderful things in the last couple of years. And really not only bringing the sport forward, but you have a, such a, a depth of elite women doing this that just projecting out who do you think is going to be the top three uh, in 2020. is just it's a fool's errand at this point. You can't even like go down that road. You know, to to say nothing of someone like Emily Sisson, who might join the fray at some point. So, but looking at the men, here they are in Boston. They did just as well, at least at the top end, as the women did with both Ward and Fobble coming in sub 210. uh, First time since Hall and Meb almost a decade Mm -hmm. ago to do it. When you see those efforts. Do you think that this is one of those situations where this was all of a sudden you're going to have a flurry of people doing it, that it just, it was just a matter of time. Or do you think that this was more of, Hey, it just broke right for them, but maybe the American men are more in the two twelve range.
1: If I had to bet, I would say that it opens the floodgates a bit. Floodgates might not be the right word. I don't think we're all of a sudden going to see, um, a flurry of sub 210 performances from from US men but <laughs> That's i think fair. We're gonna, That's but fair. i but i think we're going to see a lot of them step up uh and compete at a level that they previously haven't because guys like Ward and Fobble have given them the permission in a sense to to do that to stick their nose in it and see what's possible um, and I say that pretty confidently because we've seen it happen in the past. Um, It's happened at other distances. Um, It's happened with the women here in the U.S. Like they call it the Shalane effect uh, when she won New York. So I think we will certainly we will certainly see that. It'll be it. You know, what's interesting is the window between now and the the trials is is closing quickly. Uh, So um, it'll just be interesting to see how that all shakes out over the next over the next
0: few months. Absolutely. It really is so exciting to see this come about. I feel like, and no other, I I shouldn't say no other point. I feel like there's going to be so much drama and uncertainty heading into um, the Olympic marathon uh, trials that it's just going to garner so much attention. And then just the race itself, just the the course, it's topography, it's constant turns. I just feel like that course is going to be, it basically is gonna require a skill set that's gonna be a little bit different than the skill set needed to get this qualifying time. I you know what I mean? I mean obviously oh, yeah. there's there's gonna be certain things that are gonna be the same. You need to be one of the best runners around, you have to be supremely fit, so on and so forth. But it's it's almost like comparing apples and oranges in terms of race strategy.
1: It's gonna be a twenty six point two mile cross country race on pavement. I mean, that's what it's gonna end up being at at the end of the day. If you look at that course, the amount it's a an eight mile loop uh, with a two mile add on loop that they, they do three times. Um, There's a lot of undulation. The weather could be, I mean, I've looked at it could be, it could be 70. It could be like 35. Um, And it's just gonna, I mean, it's just gonna be a lot of, you know, it's not a, it's not a rhythm runner's course. Um, It's just going to be, it's going to be really interesting um, because you're going to have people in there who have the standard and they know they just have to finish in the top three. uh, And that's going to certainly play into their race strategy. And then you're going to have other people who for one reason or another don't have the standard going into the race, uh, but think they have a shot of making the team. So they're going to have a very different race strategy. Uh, And I think it's awesome. It's going to make for some really compelling racing. And I think if it is broadcast, well, not just, just to people who are interested in running but somehow to kind of the greater american sports fan population it could really ignite some new interest in the sport here in this country i think it has that sort of potential the trials
0: yeah exactly you know it's almost like to compare it to, like, to car racing like some of these marathons you it's almost like a drag race right you mm-hmm. find the fastest course you can and you just yep. burn it up and then this is going to be like short track not a short track, but like, like almost like, um, yeah, short track, like NASCAR race where cars are going like four breasts and it's going to be all strategy and savviness. And, you know, being the fastest person on that day won't necessarily guarantee you the win because like, there's going to be so many other factors and it almost plays into someone who has the kind of racing experiences that will allow them to be, you know, very, um, spur of the moment spontaneous and be and willing to just kind of like abandon pre-race strategy and say, what do I need mm-hmm. to do in this moment and be able to think on their feet? Because again, it's going to be very hard to predict exactly what's going to happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are racers and there are pacers and this is going to be a racers race through and through. I mean, you've you got you to have the fitness to be able to race at that level with the top people. But at the end of the day, it's not going to come down to who has necessarily the most leg speed or the best PR. It's going to be the person who can execute the best on the day.
0: Absolutely. Mario, I couldn't think of a better person to talk about all of this with. You have just been someone who uh, I've listened to, well, now started listening to over, the, over uh, you know, the past year or so, but read for such a long time. Thank you for your insight. It's greatly appreciated.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This was super fun.
0: Thanks again, Mario, for coming on the show. This was so much fun. If you want to learn more about Mario and subscribe to his amazing newsletter, you can do so at the Morning Shakeout. Dot com. I am always reading that, and I am always listening to his podcast by the same name. He interviews people at the height of the running community, and believe me, if you love this show, you will absolutely love his. There's no question about that. Thanks again to Mercury Mile for sponsoring the show. It's always a pleasure to have you as the presenting sponsor, and thank you to the listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the show. It's greatly appreciated, and happy running.